Hi, I'm Ben Hanani. Welcome to How Do You Do, a podcast featuring creative guests sharing the nuances of their process. Just a quick reminder to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts is the most helpful thing you can do for the podcast. First up, let me introduce our speakers. We have Ashley Aviram, who's a product manager at Tapcart, which creates high converting mobile apps for Shopify stores so they can retain customers on autopilot. Hi, Ashley. Hello. And we have Jordan Benefshea, who's the founder of the digital marketing agency IcePop. Before IcePop, Jordan worked in product at Verishop and Tinder. He's also basically the unofficial co-host of How Do You Do Pod Live. He's been here so many times. Hey, Jordan. Thanks for having me, Ben. Of course. And we have Steph Brill, who's a product manager at Shelf Engine, which helps businesses increase sales by accurately predicting the perfect amount of perishable goods to order. Hi, Steph. Hey, Ben. Hey, guys. And last but not least, we have Andrew Wagner Trugman, senior product manager at MediaLab.ai, a holding company of consumer internet brands. Hi, Andrew. Oh, do we have Andrew? Andrew, can you hear us? Give us a shout if you can hear us. Okay, you might be on mute. You might be on mute. So just tap the uh, bottom in the lower right-hand corner if that's the case. Uh, in the meantime, we'll, we'll get right into it with the first question, which, you know, as, as product managers, you all have to think about what is a great product and then how do you work toward achieving that goal? So if I were to shadow you all, I'm really curious, what would that look like? So I see Ashley first up on the left. So I'd love to ask, you know, what are, what are the qualities you look for in a great product and how do you work toward achieving that? For me, what's really made a great product is a clear understanding of the problem space. So who are you building for? Who is the target audience? Who is the target market that you're building this technology for? Um, and what are the real needs that you're solving for? And then additionally, I would say, how do you continue to build on that product and make it a product that your customers cannot live without and they keep on coming back for more? So, you know, with Tapcart, for example, we allow merchants to build uh, mobile apps. And that's for their uh, e-commerce brands. But not only do we allow them to, to build um, an e-commerce app, but we allow them to send a push notification or track their analytics. And I think those are you know, touching parallel industries and parallel needs that makes the product um, more sticky and keeps users coming back for more. And then the last thing I would say is just a product that's super intuitive and easy to understand so that people can be dropped right into the product and they immediately understand what is going on here. Oh, this is going to help me in the long run, or I, I keep, I want to come back for more. So I would say like, those are the three, those are the three things that I think make a great product. Um, and I've been really lucky to work on, on products that I feel like um, meet these needs and continue to work to meet these needs. Um, did that answer the question or was there another yeah, absolutely. No, that that's awesome. That's awesome. And and to the point about a customer clearly understanding what the product does, Jordan, you worked at Verishop and Tinder, where that was pretty straightforward, but there were competitors. So how do you how did you find yourself distinguishing um, yourself and, and showing customers that, yes, it's very easy to understand what we do, and we do it better than other people? Yeah, first of all, I agree with with everything Ashley said, I think, you know, great products solve problems. Um, they're not just things that are fun or things that, you know, people want, uh, you know, that don't actually solve a problem. Um, and like she also mentioned, you have to continue to iterate, you know, one version of a product that solve a problem today won't necessarily be relevant in three, four or five years. Um, 
And, you know, at Tinder specifically, you know, we're obviously on, we were on the consumer side, which is a little bit different than what, you know, Ashley's working on the, the SaaS side. But what we always had as our mantra was simple, uh, fun and useful were like the three things that every feature needed to have to be a good feature or a good product at Tinder. Um, and so that was always the test. Uh, if things weren't simple, uh, we knew it would be too complicated for users. Um, if they weren't useful, then we weren't solving a problem. And if they weren't fun, um, then, you know, it wasn't great for Tinder because at the end of the day, Tinder brings a lot of entertainment to people. Um, in terms of competing with other apps, um, you know, we were always told not really to look at the competitors. Uh, that's not where you're going to find innovation. That's where you're going to just end up looking like everyone else. Um, in terms of Tinder, they were the first mover. So there wasn't really a lot of use in looking at competitors that were basically just copying us. Um, Verishop is a little bit of a different story because, you know, e-commerce has been around for a while. Um, but again, there, we really tried not to look at too many e-commerce players for inspiration. We looked at other great products for inspiration, like Instagram, Snapchat, Uber, um, other tech companies, because we felt we wanted to be another tech company. We didn't just want to be another online store. Um, so that's kind of how we looked at the two different experiences. Awesome. And Steph, you're coming from an established place like Boeing and moving into product is your first time at product at a, at a startup where it's more fast paced. We talked a little about this on the podcast episode that we'll have coming out later this week. So I'm really excited for people to hear more in depth, but just to give us in a nutshell, how you, how you brought, you know, some things that you saw at a bigger place into a place that's moving rapidly. Could you give us a sneak preview of that? Yeah, definitely. It's, it's really interesting because I also like at Boeing, I was an engineer. So a lot of what I did was driven by data, but actually one of the questions that I think about now with everything I build is like, um, data gut or like intuition. And it's like, okay, well, what are, what am I using to actually drive do like making a decision? Right. And so when I think about the products that that we build, it's a little bit different for Shelf Engine because we're a B2B company. So we focus like from a product perspective, less on design and more on like functionality. And so to Jordan's point, like if you're solving a customer pain point, that's clearly something that you kind of want to focus in on and find like, what's the most optimal thing that you can do and that will scale. I think one of the things that I've really learned being in this position is that like going from a large company, there's not as much of that, um, quick pace, like try something, see if it works, iterate on that. Um, I think that's probably like the key dis like distinguish distinguishing factor between the two. Um, specifically, when I think about Boeing, a lot of what I did was kind of longer term projects and things that took a lot of data to really justify even making that decision when you're like clearly seeing the pain points in front of you and whatever process you're trying to improve. Um, and so what's really cool about like being at a startup is I've figured out things that I thought were really useful at Boeing from like a really developed process wise. And then also things that I thought could be improved at a quicker pace and like failing fast and learning from them. And that's something that I've like really tried to implement in my product development process, um, specifically when it comes to solving pain points quickly and in ways that are going to scale, um, especially at like such a fast paced growing company like Shelf Engine. Awesome. And yeah, and keeping up with the theme of taking what we learned from one side and applying it to the other. Andrew, you have, you're, you're looking at a whole bunch of different brands at once. Is there anything that, is there a common denominator you see when you're working with, you know, all these different consumer internet brands in terms of what 
defines a quality product? Um, our, I think, um, I think the answer to that is probably is definitely yes. I mean, there's a few things that tend to be really, really sticky in um, in the consumer internet, like messaging is really sticky, um, video is really sticky, um, and I think generally like community based apps are really sticky. Um, and all three of those things are, are areas that we're really interested in, in terms of like how we think about product and, um, and product development. We're also looking at things that we can develop as a holding company that then we can amortize across the entire suite. Um, and so we look at it from, okay, we, we really like this, you know, property, we want to acquire it and then we want to double down on what makes it great. But then also what are things that are just kind of trends in, um, in the industry that, uh, all social networks are, uh, are going to include at some point. So like, I think a good example of that would be like stories, for example, like stories are a format that at some point, you know, have been introduced in almost every major social network. Um, and we look at that things like that in addition to other kind of centralized services that we can integrate integrate across the portfolio to make everything that we bring in more valuable uh, and stickier. Awesome. So what I really like about this panel is we have experience across different industries. The process, though, of, of product management, there are some cool things that seem to be applicable around the table for all of you here. So part of part of the iterative process is, I imagine, deciding, okay, you know, we have what we need to move forward. Um, or, you know, this is a feature that can wait until the next iteration. When you are figuring all that out, how do you decide when a product is ready to be released? Ashley, do you want to go for it? Sure. Um, yeah, so I think the question was, how do you decide when a product is ready to be released? How do you decide what specific features are included in that first iteration versus which can wait till the second iteration. Um, and that's like a really challenging problem in, in product management, I would say, is like, for me, I always want to build the best product possible that delivers the most amount of value. But what I try to think of is really like, what is the goal of the product? And what's the least we can do? Um, and what's the least we can create? And what's like the fastest way we can build it? that still solves that problem that we're trying to solve. Um, and then from there, being able to prioritize, hey, maybe this, this feature would be really cool to add to the product, but it's gonna add on an additional two months. That doesn't really make sense for our goal. And maybe let's prioritize that in the next one. So I kind of think of it in like, um, I kind of prioritize it in how much value does this provide and how much time is it gonna take, which is you know, a classic way that a lot of product managers decide um, what specific features to include in in a specific release. Um, and there's always ways to iterate upon things in the future. So I think that's the cool thing about tech. And that's what really, um, that's what really drew me to like the tech space and, and specifically like the research and development space is there's always room to grow and continue to iterate on things. Um, and so I, yeah, I guess the answer to that question for me is just figuring out which features will provide the most value and what's you know the time estimate of each of those and figuring out the combination of those both will give me which features to prioritize in that specific release. 
what you're saying about value and time reminds me of something Jordan told me a while back. Jordan, there was there was this triangle you had mentioned. I don't know if you still remember it. Is is that applicable here about, you know, deciding when a product is ready? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I uh, I'm trying to remember all three sides, but there is a time constraint. There is like a feature constraint and there's like a capital constraint or something like that. And you can only really, you know, control two of the sides, not all three um, when you're a product manager. Um, and so like Ashley said, you know, you're at the end of the day trying to figure out what is the minimum you have to build to test your hypothesis um, and building that. I think the challenging thing there is that, you know, some PMs or some teams when they're building, they think minimum viable product means that, um, you know, it's a quick test to put out, but a lot of times a minimum viable product can still be super polished, um, super, you know, thought out, um, it has to work really, really well for the customer. Minimum viable product doesn't mean that it should work just okay, right? It's just the amount of features you're adding into that that experience. Um, and I think the other challenging thing is from an engineering perspective, figuring out like when to build for scale versus when to build for an experiment. And I think a lot of times at bigger tech companies like Tinder and some of the other places we all work at, the engineering team is always thinking about how do we build for scale? How do we build something that's going to work for all these different edge cases where sometimes all you're really trying to learn, all you're trying to really trying to figure out um, is something much smaller. And sometimes, you know, you build something knowing that if this is successful, you might actually throw some of it away and, you know, build something that is much better because you've proven that there's a need for this or that something is working here. Um, so like Ashley said, it's a really challenging problem. There's no like clear cut way of looking at it. Um, but again, the, the thing I like to say is that the production feel like a minimum viable product to the customer. Um, that should just be like what it feels like as the person who's designing the product that knows how much more potential there is. Jordan, I'm going to, I'm going to jump off that point for a second. Cause I, I could not agree more. I think there's kind of two ways that I look at it. So before I start anything, I'll either like explicitly or just kind of in the back of the napkin, I'll say, okay, this is what would, this is what success would look like if we did this. And I do that at three levels kind of. So if, if there's an opportunity for us, if there is the feature space that's big enough or a product that's big enough that needs to be built, um, I'll kind of lay out the crawl, walk, run phases just immediately. And they might not end up being the same things that I plan to build from the like the beginning of the product, but I think the success metrics and like trying to aim towards those success metrics, I think um, bringing that consistently across the development process has been like really helpful to me. Um, so like when I think about building something that's like crawl level, which is really just like the MVP in my mind, you're right. Like it can be totally polished, but I think it can also just be a small, um, a small facet of what the bigger picture could be, or it can be something that's like really um it it operates functionally it has ui um like thought about but it might not be exactly what you want in end state and part of that is like you're not going to learn that right away like part of that what going towards that run phase is figuring out what people want and doing that iterative process of feedback um, and building that into those later phases for sure yeah i would uh Kind of, I think everybody did a really good job of explaining it. I would just add on that I think um, one pretty simple um, matrix that most people can do is, you know, like an impact cost. So, like, how much time is it going to take you to to build this? 
and then risk. Um, and so I think you want to have, I think it depends on the, the business goals and, um, but you certainly want to have some relatively high impact, um, and relatively high uncertainty things that you should be at least thinking about. Um, but then you also need to hit your singles. Um, not everything can be a home run. And I think, um, a good roadmap has a combination of all those things because, you know, engineering plans never go the way that you would like them to, you know, planning is great, but plans never go according to plan. Um, so I think it's always smart to have like a, you know, pretty extensive backlog of things that you can go to when, um, things don't go according to plan. Um, but you know, I would definitely, in terms of you know, going back to the original question, when to know when to ship, I think, you know, I'm personally very much an advocate of shipping early. Um, I think it's really easy to get into like analysis paralysis and start second guessing yourself and your feature. And, um, you know, it's a cliche, but you, you do learn uh, just as much about more from failure than you do from success. So, you know, it's okay to take some bets that don't pay off um, as long as you're learning from them. So I love, I love all these, these points about the, you know, the impact, the cost, the risk, how you go about achieving a minimal viable product. I see a world though, and tell me if this has been your experience. I see a world where there might even be disagreement among the team about what a minimal viable product looks like, where the engineers might think something is ready, but the people on the design side think it's it's not quite aesthetically there yet. How do you go about building a consensus before you release a product so everyone is supportive of the product that's being released? I think I I, I think one answer is you can't always design by committee. So I think like, you have to have enough tr you have to have enough trust amongst your team to be able to kind of make the call sometimes and say, Hey, I know this is ugly or this is ugly to you. Or I know this looks like, you know, we've built this in a relatively hacky way, but I think like, uh, like Jordan said, you know, the, your job as a PM, a lot of it is like to persuade people to do things without, um, without necessarily being their boss and saying like, you know, this is why. And, um, and how if it, you know, if this is an MVP and it does work, these are all the great things. But I think creating that like idea and culture of experimentation makes people on the team more comfortable with it, where it's like, this is an experiment. It's not a feature, really. Like, it's it's just something that we're testing. Um, and But I do think like it's natural to have some tension between like a PM and the engineering lead around what they consider an MVP. I think that's that that's to be expected. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Um, oh, okay. I totally agree with that. And I think what you were saying about persuasion is such a big thing in product management. And it's actually one of my like favorite parts of product management is getting everyone to be on the same page, which is not always easy. But what I've found that works for me is just like sharing things very early and making sure that everyone's aligned on the goal. So like, let's just say we are doing an MVP and it's really scrappy and the designer doesn't like how it's looking, making sure from the first second that the designer is building that she knows, okay, this is just an experiment. I know it's not your typical work and you like things to 
look like X, Y, and Z. But remember that the goal is really to just test this out and see if our users are even interested in it. And I think really aligning people around a goal and aligning them around a mission of the product um, really helps people to be excited about what they're building. And it may reduce some tension. Like obviously, um, there's always going to be a little bit of tension just because people have different goals sometimes or, or different strategies of working. But I think if everyone is united in, on some front on the idea of what the goal is of the product, it can reduce some of that tension and get everyone on the same page of, hey, let's release it in this way. And then, and then later on, we'll, we'll add your way of doing X, Y, and Z. Um, so that's, that's how I've found success in, in getting people on the same page about releases. Yeah, I think um, Ashley's point is spot on about, and, and Andrew, about the negotiation. A lot of her job is, you know, bringing together different teams to get them to agree to things, to make sacrifices, to make, um, you know, modifications to the plan to make something come out. I personally over-index on uh, design's opinion when it comes to releasing something as opposed to engineering's opinion. Um, just because if you're truly designing with like UX in mind and not so worried about the aesthetics, but mainly the user experience, then I think that the product designer or the user experience designer needs to be the person to sign off on it. Um, because if your whole thing is about testing a hypothesis um, and we don't make it easy for customers to do that action or to achieve what they're trying to do, um, the test is kind of almost pointless. So, you know, I, it, there's a lot of different company cultures. And so there's companies that are engineering driven, like Google, there's companies that are product design driven, like Airbnb, there's companies that are product driven, probably a little bit more like Facebook. Uh, I think each of them deal with it a little bit differently. I tend to be a little bit more on the product design side, where I think product design should always give the sign off on things. And of course, there's negotiation. Of course, you know, you ask design to let some things pass and slip. Um, but without their sign off, I think it's very challenging to put out a test um, that is all about getting someone to test a, like a user experience. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. Steph, is there anything you wanted to uh, add before I ask the, one final question before we take uh, questions from the audience? No, I mean, like, I think it also, I mean, to, to both Jordan and Ashley's point, like, it also depends on what company you work for. Like I mentioned, like, being at a B2B company where um, not only is it B2B, but I actually don't build products for our, our customers. My customers are our internal teams, like um, our inventory staff, we call shelf champions, our um, operations team, our accounting team, things like that. It's a lot different. So um, like Jordan, to your point, I focus a lot on like UX, but less so on UI. And like, we don't have a big team. We're just like a tiny little startup. And like a lot of people are kind of just taking on like some of these extra roles. And what I found is that um, I think in bigger organizations, it probably doesn't operate that way. But like when I bring in engineers early in the conversation, when I have them be in the conversation directly with our, um, our ops teammates, our onboarding teammates who are really the users that we end up like fi figuring out the pain points and finding pro like solutions to their problems. Um, what I found is that it's really helpful to have them in the conversation up front because they can give insights that maybe would take us a couple of rounds of feedback to be able to get back to them um, and would take a lot longer to get the product out. Um, and so I really lean heavily on like collaborating with teammates um, and like doing that negotiation for features and 
and level of effort versus impact. Um, but doing that, like not, I like to say, like, I don't like to ideate in a vacuum. I'd rather include more people throughout the process. Cause I do think that like, at least at my stage company, a lot gets done a lot faster when you do that. And one other point, then I'll just add on to this, like design versus engineering uh, topic is, I think a lot of times uh, engineering has a lot of freedom to kind of design solutions the way they they think they should be designed from like an engineering technical perspective. And like the rest of the company doesn't like really question that because it's technical, the engineers know what they're doing. I look at design the same way. You know, I, I think design is also technical. There's best practices and a lot of technical things that, although I can see it, I don't really fully understand as well as a product designer. Um, and so I think that's the way to kind of think about design trade-offs. Um, although they're more visual and easier to critique, I think they're just as important as all the thought that goes into writing an algorithm or any of the other things the engineering team is doing. But like Ashley and Steph and Andrew all said, having everyone in the room on day one is definitely the best way to accomplish things and get things out the door quickly. Your point about design reminds me of something you showed me a while back where there was this great feature on an app, but your thumb covered it because it was in the lower right-hand corner, which made me feel sorry for the engineers who worked so hard on it because... I, you know, it was basically obscured by this simple design flaw that could have been fixed. So all, all interesting food for thought. I'll, I'll offer one more question before we, we take Maddie's questions. And if there's anybody else in the audience, feel free to raise your hand and we'll bring you onto the stage to ask your question. But finally, my, my last question is, is there anything you've learned from a boss or a mentor? Um, we, we mentioned a bit of your previous workplaces, but if, if there's a boss or a mentor who's had a meaningful impact on how you approach product or just your own research that has a, has had a deep impact on you. I'd love to hear if there's been some kind of inspirational source that you look to or you're able to seek guidance from. I've got a, I've got a quick one. One of my um, mentors in one of my previous roles always used to say, don't boil the ocean, which is kind of funny when you think about it because like, how do you boil an ocean? But her point is really that like, uh, don't bite off more than you can chew because you'll make a lot bigger impact if you're focusing your intention like very heavily onto one thing. And so right now I'm I, like, personally, I'm managing like a bunch of different products and feature areas. And so I really try to focus in every time I'm giving, like every time I need to give attention to, to one product or one feature area for um, a significant portion of time, I really try to do so and like reduce, you know, distractions. Um, and that's, I mean, that's helped me a ton, especially in this new role where everything's moving fast and you got to kind of touch everything and figure it out. Yeah. Um, that's awesome, Stephanie. Yeah. I, I think that something that maybe it's not a, a product necessarily way of thought, but is just something that I've learned from an old boss was that it's okay to not always know the answer exactly. Um, whether that's something on the engineering or design side and you're leaning on your peers or it's something on the consumer side that is using your product and that you need to go out and validate a specific opinion. It's okay to not know the answer and and try things um, and ask other people for collaboration and help. And I think that's just guided a lot of um, my work and how I work with others as a product manager and work to um, empower people to do their best work possible. It's just, you know, bring other people in, collaborate with others. You know, everyone's opinion is valid and like, let's work together to get to the best solution. Um, I think that's something that is like very successful as a product manager and um, 
I'm very lucky that like my first product boss thought that way because it empowered me to think that way. Um, and maybe like lessen the tension between, you know, PMs, engineers and designers, et cetera. Uh, I can go next. I think uh, a couple things I learned um, from like our chief product officer at Tinder. One was that the best products temic, uh, tend to mimic reality. Um, and so, you know, if you look at, for example, Tinder, um, you know, that was supposed to mimic like seeing people at a bar and making eye contact with someone and then speaking with them. Um, the things I worked on at Verishop with social commerce, again, trying to make shopping social, just like the way you would go with friends to the mall. Um, so I think all the, the best consumer products are taking something that happens in the real world and then bringing them online. And the other thing that, you know, Brian, the, the CPO of Tinder would always say was um, like, there's this phrase in a product where it's like, if a child or a grandmother can use your product, it's a, it's a good product. Um, and he really drove that home for us. And um, I remember whenever we added any business rules to like any product, he would right away just be like, this is too confusing. I don't get it. Users won't get it. Um, and he really pushed us to stop that habit of always going and this and this can happen and that and that can happen. And all these extra business rules are just to make things confusing for users. Totally agree with that last one, by the way. And I think it's a very easy to get uh, caught in that trap. One thing I would say, which I think is, it seems extremely obvious, um, but is actually much, much harder than it looks, is when you're building something, um, don't forget exactly why you're doing it um, and know exactly what you're trying to do with that particular thing that you're building. I think oftentimes, uh, especially the less, uh, you know, the less that you've kind of shipped things, it's really easy to just want to grab a feature that you think is cool and, and do it. Um, and I, and I think that's obviously not, um, really a strategy. Um, and so what I would say is, um, kind of go through an exercise of thinking about like, what would good look like? What would, what would a really good outcome be? And like, how would you know it's a good outcome? Kind of very down to the detail where imagining it's released and you're looking at the post release. What does it look like that you know it's good? Um, and then keep that exactly in mind while you're designing. And I think it'll often, you'll often realize that you might not have been, you might have been using this, trying to, you know, use a solution that wasn't the solution to the actual problem. Uh, and I think that's a really, really, really easy trap to get into. So I guess my biggest product takeaway is, um, know exactly the reason that you're building what you're building um, and be really disciplined about kind of and, and critical with yourself around, okay, well, this is not actually, this doesn't actually impact what I want it to impact um, and throw it away if it doesn't and just keep focusing on what the goal is. That is a great segue to our first question from Maddie, who I've been talking with about her upcoming travel recommendations app, Camber. I'll let her plug it. But we've just been having some cool conversations about what if it did this? What if it did this? And she's been very wise about saying, well, this is the mission we're setting out to do. And what you're suggesting is great, but it veers off the mission, Ben. So I want her to plug Camber real quick, but I would also love to hear your question, Maddie. Hello, welcome to the stage. 
Hello. Wow. Thank you so much for this inspiring panel. Um, I am not a technical person and I am developing an app. So <laughs> I think I have a very interesting perspective on everything. And it's been, I've been taking vigorous notes because you guys are obviously pros. Um, so I guess, I mean, let me plug Camber, I guess. Um, Camber is a new travel recommendations app launching this summer. You'll be able to list all of your favorite places by city and follow your friends and then see all of those recommendations on one map view. Um, so I guess my question is, you know, since you all are very technical or maybe you don't have technical backgrounds, um, I, I don't know specifically, but how do you navigate product management if you're not a technical person like myself, um, what are some tips you have for people? Because I obviously have run into many issues uh, with the developers that we use. I basically am the product manager, but never have had experience in it. Um, so it's been incredible learning it, being thrown into it, and obviously making tons of mistakes because I, I don't have the background. But um, what are some things as a, as a maybe, if you're an entrepreneur and you're starting a business and you can't hire a specific product manager up front, but you are kind of do, wearing a lot of hats, what are some things to look out for or to make sure that you know in terms of maybe technical language or um, you know red flags or things like that um, for future entrepreneurs to look out for when they're when they're uh, building building a product but don't have the technical experience? Yeah, I can go because I actually don't have that much of a technical background. Before product management, I was working as a data analyst, but I never had real experience with engineers in terms of like, I never had any coding experience, just like SQL or like pulling specific data. Um, so I came into product so fresh and so not knowing what product management was. Um, but I think what's really helped me communicate with engineers is in documents in which you're trying to translate your ideas and trying, like we use that at Tab Party, we use a product requirement document. So in there, I really try to like over explain in like excruciating detail, exactly a like the goals of the project and how the user flows are gonna work and how each component of the product is gonna work. That way, like you don't even need to be technical to write these documents. It's just about outlining the goal of the project and like how the functionality of each of the components of the product is going to work. I don't really think that you need, in my opinion, I don't think you need to be super, super technical in order to be a successful product manager. For me, it doesn't matter if someone codes something way A or way B, um, unless like way A is going to create a bunch of technical debt in the future, maybe not way A. But in my opinion, like I want to leave that up to the engineers. I want to give them that responsibility. What I want to make sure I communicate to them is the reason we're doing the project and really over communicate how the functionality of the product should work. So Maddie, I don't really think like you need a necessarily like a super technical background. I just think you really need to know your product and know how you want it to work um, in terms of like the, the functionality of it. I think that's a great point. Um, definitely being very specific with your criteria is important. Uh, the other thing that I typically see is engineers, we kind of mentioned this earlier, but they tend to over-engineer and sometimes under-deliver on user experience. Um, and so I think 
from your perspective, Maddie, um, you know, you should always be pushing engineers to figure out like, are they building something for now or are they building something with the mindset that we're going to have a hundred million users and it's going to scale. And my recommendation is if you're a brand new company and you're trying to see if there's product market fit and you're trying to, you know, see uh, if this thing has some merit, I wouldn't necessarily try to build something the same way Facebook does. That's like over-engineering it, overthinking it. Um, I would think more about like, you know, is there something that can scale up to hundreds of thousands of users? And if we get there, that's a good problem that we can fix later. Um, so that's one piece of advice. The other piece of advice is every technology decision you make um, has certain ramifications. And I think sometimes maybe people who are a little bit more, let's say, technical with iOS specifically would know that if you use this piece of Apple technology, these are the limitations and these are the, the pros. Um, and so, you know, one example that comes to mind for Camber is you can use Google Maps API, you can use um, Foursquare, and there's like another few other map uh, technologies you can use. I would try to figure out the cost, the benefit, the pros, the cons of each of those and make that decision as opposed to letting engineering make that decision. Because you might in the back of your mind have this feature that you want to build in a few months and, oh no, uh, Google Maps doesn't offer the categorization the same way you thought it would, but Foursquare does. And so I think having engineering break down the pros and cons of these technical decisions are really important so that you don't have to go back and rip things out three months later, six months later, when you're building V2, V3, and, and on. I totally agree with that. I think, um, I think kind of to Jordan's point, I think I would get, I'll try and get more comfortable looking at um, documentation. Even if you don't know how to code, I think most documentation has things spelled out in a way that is relatively straightforward. Um, and I think also like a second thing is I think there's a culture of like um, engineers can be intimidating and engineering is intimidating. I also think like, you know, don't, you know, just like ask a lot of questions. Um, you know, don't be afraid to ask stupid questions or what you would think is a stupid question. I, most engineers like to talk and explain things, uh, at least in my experience. And so I definitely ask a lot of questions. And if you're not sure about something, keep asking until it makes, it makes some sort of sense to you. Um, and I guess in more practical sense, um, I do think there would be like, there's a lot of like free, very, uh, kind of, beginner simple programming classes uh and i think like just spending a little bit of time doing that will also help you empathize and understand the way that engineers are thinking so i think to ashley and jordan's point like being super detail-oriented is something that is obvious to you won't always be obvious to an engineer and so like you can never be too detailed in your spec um so i would you know I would definitely, I guess the takeaway would be, you know, be extremely detailed um, when you're of, with regards to what you want and then ask, feel comfortable asking about pros and cons and trade-offs and uh, of different implementations. And then lastly, like no stupid questions, ask tons of questions. And uh, over time, you'll start getting more comfortable with uh, the way things work. And I'm not technical myself, but over the years you get, 
you start to understand things um, and there's patterns and um, it becomes more and more clear and less kind of opaque. Maddie, this is lots of great free advice. I mean, wow. <laughs> Do you feel like your question was answered? Yes, absolutely. Thank you all so much. Um, I, I definitely agree with you. I think what I've learned from even just creating a, a beta app is, um, you know, certain features. I think I just went into it with the expectation that certain features and things would work quicker or I guess like the language around the way I spoke about the app and the transitions and things of that nature. Um, I've definitely learned more of the the lingo to help facilitate and streamline that communication. But um, yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to ask the dumb questions. I am very comfortable with that. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you for the question. Thank you, guys. Andrew, you were about to say something. Go for it. No, I was going to say... I was going to say that was not a dumb question. Like your question was not a dumb question. Thank you. <laughs> I once had a teacher um, where a student raised her hand and asked a question. And uh, the teacher said, there are no dumb questions, only dumb people. And we all started laughing because we thought that the teacher was calling her dumb, but he just didn't finish the sentence. He's like, there are just dumb people who don't ask the question. So Maddie, thank you for the great question. For what it's worth, I thought that was a very thoughtful question as well. And definitely some thoughtful answers up here. I'll put out one final call for any questioners, uh, any questions from the audience, if there are any. If not, I just want to I just want to say this has been really cool for me because I I came up in TV writing, so very different from product management. But there is a parallel I see where, you know, we we as writers write a script, and then the directors and the department heads and the actors have to go out and execute it. So, like to Ashley's point, when you're saying, you know, ver option A versus option B, like a director would come back and be like, we could shoot this scene this way or this way, and then you revisit what was in the script, what are we trying to achieve, aka the functionality. So. Even not coming from a product management world, this has been super cool and fascinating to listen to. And I'm so glad we have a guest lecturer at USC and Jordan here where maybe this recording can be shared with future students, future PMs coming up. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. <laughs> Definitely. I'll send them your podcast. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, this will go up as a bonus episode on the How Do You Do podcast feed. So I'm really glad we recorded this and captured all this insight. It was great. I'll, uh, I'll wind down by just plugging plugging the podcast. You can follow How Do You Do Podcasts wherever you find podcasts. Follow me on Clubhouse. Follow How Do You Do Pod live to stay notified of conversations like this one. And I want to make sure our guests get to plug all the great work they're doing and where you can keep up with them. So I see Ashley first and we'll we'll snake around. And Maddie, while you're here, you can also plug Canberra at the end. <laughs> um, but we'll start with Ashley. Yeah, I guess you can just add me on LinkedIn. I don't I don't know. I don't, I don't necessarily know if I want someone to follow me on Instagram, but you can just follow me on LinkedIn at Ashley Every Rum. Um, and yeah, that's, that's where you can follow me. <laughs> awesome. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Jordan Banas, B-A-N-A-S. Uh, or you can follow my company's Instagram, IcepopHQ, uh, on Instagram and Twitter. And for me, you can follow me. Any social media is Brill Dog. Uh, that's B-R-I-L-L-D-O-G. Or you can just follow me on LinkedIn. I don't know if I'm the only Stephanie Brill, but I'm one of very few. Amazing. And Andrew? Yeah, you can. Uh, I mean, I don't post uh, anything interesting very often, but feel free to follow me uh, on LinkedIn. And uh, 
yeah, I think I'm the only Andrew Wagner Trugman in the world, so it should be easy to find me. Amazing. And Maddie, while you're still here, go for go for a final Camber plug. <laughs> um, you can follow Camber at Camber app on TikTok and Instagram. Um, and then also, if you want to sign up for updates, go to camberapp.com and we'll tell you when we launch. Amazing. Well, thank you all so much. This was super insightful and I'm excited to share this on the feed. Once, once it goes live, everybody will get to listen. So um, hope you all have a great night and hopefully we can, we can reconnect soon and hear about more insights down the line. Thank you all. Thank you, Ben. Thanks for having us, Ben. Bye. I hope you found value in today's conversation. If you still haven't left your review for How Do You Do Podcast, I'm going to walk you through the process right now, and it only takes 10 seconds. First, look at your phone screen and click where it says, How Do You Do Podcast, which is in purple. And if you're not seeing this, then you're probably listening to this on a different app. So I want you to click on where it says, Listen on Apple Podcasts, and then you'll see the purple link. Click that. Then you'll just scroll past all the previous episodes to where it says ratings and reviews, and all you need to do is tap the star on the far right, and you've left a five-star rating. I thank you in advance for taking the 10 seconds to do that, and I really, truly appreciate you listening to this episode. Thanks for sharing it with your friends and followers, and I'll see you back here next week.